Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super exciting, the guests that we have today. We're going to be talking about aerospace quite a little bit, you know, from having an incredible journey, you know, being in college, you know, without a doubt, you know, a college experience that many of us would dream of, uh, to then, you know, going to SpaceX, then, you know, like becoming an operator and now being able to be on the other side of the table investing. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jordan Noon. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. I'm happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about that walk through memory lane, through memory lane of being born in California. So how was life growing up there in Pasadena? I loved it. Uh, you know, I've never really gotten too far. You know, I went from uh, growing up in Pasadena. It's where my mom grew up. My dad grew up. Um, so my grandparents grew up as well. And then to USC. And that's really where I view my uh, career starting. I started studying uh, aerospace engineering at USC back in 2010. Uh, and that's what I view as the, uh, the catalyst and starter of the rest of my career. Now, what is this fascination around aerospace? How does that start? My aerospace fascination, I think, started my dad um, had a dream of becoming a pilot. And for a variety of reasons, that didn't end up uh, working out for him. But I grew up studying planes. Then we had tons of uh, books on planes. Whenever a plane would go by, my dad and I would, you know, try to recognize what kind of plane it was. And that led to the aerospace engineering uh, degree. You know, I always had kind of this fascination with planes growing up. Um, and I never really thought about working on rockets, which obviously my career ended up taking me quite a bit. Um, it was my first week of college. Uh, I was in my aerospace, you know, 101 class, um, thinking I'd work on planes the rest of my career. And that first week of school, a group called the USC Rocket Propulsion Lab, it was a hands-on group. Um, in the school, they did a presentation, you know, all the hands-on groups that first Friday of school did a presentation to the 101 classes, um, talking about what they were working on. And they were trying to become the first student group to fly a rocket to space, which I found uh, absolutely fascinating. And I started, uh, yeah, I started hanging out with that group that day. And also that led to being the first student to get FA clearance. I mean, what, what, is, what is that? What, what, what happened there? And how were you able to, to really accomplish that? You know, that, that group, I had started as a freshman. I remember the first, uh, that first Friday after um, seeing their presentation, I went to their group meeting. It was like 4 p.m. that Friday. And, you know, the rest of the students went and that was their time to go to their first, you know, first frat party. And for me, I was like, this is my opportunity to work on some cool stuff with rockets. And and I think it was really what I found captivating was them setting their own goal. Like you hear of a lot of student projects where they're trying to fly, you know, a glider a mile. They're trying to fly a rocket a mile high, like hit some, you know, NASA competition goal. Instead of flying an egg a mile high and bringing it down on a parachute. Um, but what really I found captivating was that they were setting their own goal. They wanted to be this first student group to fly a rocket to space. Nothing anywhere near what a student group had been done before you know, had done before. It was, you know, orders of magnitude past that. Um, and that was amazing to me. So 
I started with that group. Um, they were starting to fly rockets that year. They were flying one out of Black Rock Desert, Nevada. Then about 19 days later, they're building from scratch to flying this rocket at Mach 4 19 days later, which was this amazing push for me. And, um, but I ended up taking over the group as a uh, junior. I ran it my junior and senior year. And in the years in between, it went from an idea and some preliminary progress on flying a rocket to space to actually having built the first one. And we flew that first one. We flew the second one my senior year. Um, but one of the biggest bottlenecks on the way was the regulatory side. You know, you have to call up the FAA and it's, it's a pretty complicated process and ask for permission. It's a whole application process. Ask for permission to fly something into the atmosphere. You know, how do you prove that you're not going to hit a structure? How do you prove you're not going to hit an endangered species? How do you prove you're not going to, you know, hit an airliner? And you have to go through that entire process. It's very, very detailed. Um, and the FAA was not a fan of a bunch of students doing this. You know, what are these 19-year-olds trying to do here? Um, but we ended up breaking through. It was a very, very tricky process and difficult. But in doing so, I ended up being... I'm going to first student in the world, youngest person in the world to get an FAA clearance to fly um, those rockets to space. And how were you able to convince them? Then it was a lot of persistence um, on the first side and then a lot on a software development side, actually. Then that we had built the rockets, but the challenges is proving, you know, based on any variation in the wind, any variation in how the rocket takes off, any variation in the actual performance of the vehicle that um, the FAA does their job, which is keeping the public safe, whether that's airliners, airports, structures, um, and even stretching into um, endangered species. Then as far as where um, there is big enough land area to fly, which is Black Rock Desert, Nevada, is where a lot of these high power rockets um, fly from, that you're not going to land on the endangered sage grouse, which is an endangered bird out there. And it sounds very... Um, unlikely and uh, a little bit pedantic from an analysis and like likelihood perspective, but you have to prove that, that you'll land in this area and not that area, that if the wind varies, you'll go over that area and not hit it, things like that. There were times the FAA stopped talking to us. There was time the Bureau of Land Management, who is the same group uh, or a similar group that we also had to have permission from to use the land, not just the airspace, but the land as well out there. Um, they would stop responding. And with the Bureau of Land Management, we ended up driving in person. As students, we'd find two, three-day windows to drive up to Winnemucca, Nevada. Then it was about two hours east of Reno. Then it's like a 13, 14-hour drive. Then, and we would go and knock on the door and say, we need to keep talking, when they would no longer answer our emails and calls. And it was things like that on a persistent side where we ended up breaking through them, realizing we were serious, and then us uh, developing software that I'd say is unlike what any students had developed before to simulate and verify the rockets, um, what you call dispersions. So how much variance there can be in the performance and landing locations of the rockets as they fly. Um, and it ended up winning them over. And obviously you ended up graduating too, and you go to SpaceX. So why SpaceX and what were you doing at SpaceX? No, great question. And my first job after college was um, a SpaceX internship which eventually converted to being um, full-time. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but SpaceX at the time, this was in 2014, they had just started flying their Falcon 9 rockets. Those are flying, you know, 100 times a year now and landing 100 times a year. Now, but they were just flying, um, the first vehicle I worked on was Flight 6 of Falcon 9. And it was a very exciting time to be um, working at SpaceX because it was young, it was, you know, kind of brand new groundbreaking projects that they were working on. 
and and they were local in LA. I, I liked living in LA, and I didn't really know yet where um, I wanted to live or kind of try. So staying in LA was a good uh, foundation for me. Uh, the first project I worked on there was the Cargo Dragon spacecraft. So that was taking um, cargo to the International Space Station. You know, flying from SpaceX's site in Florida and resupplying the space station, um, which was an amazing kind of entrance to my career to work on something that um, was so highly kind of complicated, um, doing real missions, like uh, solving real needs. And why would you say that so many people in SpaceX ended up becoming founders? No, it's a great question. And I think a lot of it is the entrepreneurial spirit that SpaceX has. You know, they, despite now being, you know, they're kind of 13,000 or so employees. You know, when I was there, it was closer to 3,000. But that entrepreneurial spirit and ambition of doing new things, pushing as aggressively as possible has stayed through that scaling, which is fairly rare for, for companies. And, um, and the space ecosystem has opened so much, even because of the success of SpaceX and, you know, other launch companies that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was basically no commercial space activity compared to the amount you see today. Then launch was such a big bottleneck that it was too expensive to fly things, too complicated to fly things, you know, launchers going up too infrequently. And now you almost have the opposite problem where launch costs are going down so dramatically that there's such an increase in in-space activity that people don't know how to handle things like in-space traffic control. Then where it's how you make sure two things don't impact because there used to be so few things up there, it wasn't a, a common concern. So I think it's it's that where people get trained and then that work at SpaceX is um, opening up the space economy, then by launch costs dropping so dramatically that um, that opportunity opens up for new people to take chunks of that space economy um, kind of as a direct transition from their SpaceX experience. So let's talk about then how does relativity space come knocking? Because obviously, you know, you're here in an amazing company. Uh, Elon Musk, the founder, I mean, everyone, you know, I'm sure that is in aerospace, you know, would love to, to, to take a stab at working there. So it sounds like you were already at the top. So uh, why did you thought it was a good idea to, to give your notice? Well, so SpaceX, even at the time, and it's an amazing company with um, what was 3,000 people. And there are certain things that SpaceX does that we started to see an alternative to. Even SpaceX, like people tend to not realize SpaceX is almost, um, they're actually over now, they're more than 20 years old. And so I think 21 years old as a company. Uh, they only became mainstream, you know, kind of three, four years ago that people started to know them outside of the aerospace world. And, and that's something where they do have things that are dated. There are things there. That, the phrase that I remember was uh, no science experience. And that's something where if something involved, let's say, like scientific level development, it was viewed as a non-starter. And the area that we started to see benefit in that did involve what we'd call a science experiment to grow was 3D printing. And many people know 3D printing from like a hobby level of like, you know, using something to print a Christmas ornament, to pr print a toothbrush, you know, to print some kind of doodad. Um, but there's what's called metal 3D printing, where you're 3D printing metallic parts and high-performance parts. And that's been fairly common in certain parts of aerospace for, you know, let's say 10 years. But the thing that we wanted to solve that eventually led to forming Relativity as a company, then was scaling that metal 3D printing. 
how do you instead of printing something the size of you know a one cubic foot you know so one foot by one foot by one foot size object how do you print something the size of an entire rocket so let's say 10 foot diameter and 100 feet tall and that's where we saw the potential but that involved development so both for myself and tim ellis tim is my relativity co-founder he still runs the company day to day as ceo and we saw the potential to scale the technology that no incumbent wanted to do, not even the startups. Tim was at Blue Origin, I was at SpaceX, which you would still consider kind of startups at that phase. Then, and that's where me and Tim started going kind of pen to paper. And we did what I think anyone would do is, uh, you know, search on Google, how to get venture capital. And in the first two things that came up was Mark Cuban's name. And we sent him an email, you know, his email is fairly public. And, and uh, we applied to Y Combinator, which is the, the startup incubator in the Valley. And, and we ended up getting capital from both. We got accepted into Y Combinator and then Mark wrote a check. Um, and then we got that capital and then started really going pen to paper on what would it look like to scale those printers up then, and develop a company around 3D printing of um, aerospace vehicles. And what ended up being the business model of relativity space for the people that are listening to get it? How does the company make money? So what Relativity does is sell satellite launch services. When, um, and it sells satellite launch services to companies doing communication satellites, imaging satellites, logistics satellites, a whole slew of applications. And so very similar to companies like SpaceX and Rocket Lab and ABL Space Systems, all the companies that are flying rockets with customer payloads on them. So it's the customers paying the company to fly you know, their, their satellites, their components. The main difference with Relativity, though, is how those rockets are made. Because Relativity is vertically integrated all the way from flying the satellites, operating the launch pads and the rockets, um, operating the factories, designing the rockets, but also designing and operating the printers that print the rockets. And that was the main innovation for the company, which was if you build a company around 3D printing, it's not because we're obsessed with 3D printing. It's because 3D printing is an excuse to digitize the factory. It's a digitally controlled process. It's a process with digital feedback. So if you design the entire factory around 3D printing, you end up with a flexibility that more resembles software development than resembles firm fixed infrastructure in a traditional factory. So it allows you to iterate better, quicker, cheaper than traditional manufacturing. So there is the ability to, let's say, develop faster or catch up to a company like SpaceX, despite what was a kind of 15-year head start at the time. And, and that's kind of the model in itself is selling those rockets, but selling better rockets, more reusable rockets, faster develop rockets because of the underlying digital technology. And I guess with the company, I mean, it sounds so fascinating, but at the same time, so complex. At what point do you guys realize, hey, I think that we're into something here? No, it's, it's a good question. And the way... And I don't think we had as mature of a framework for it at the time. Like I was, uh, I was 22 when we started. Tim, I think, was 24, 25, and this is back in 2015. And that I think we had a lot of kind of uh, wind behind our sails because of the fact that the commercial rocket ecosystem, and especially SpaceX, was building so much momentum. Like if SpaceX hadn't existed prior to Relativity, Relativity would not have been successful. And I say that because SpaceX proved that a commercial company could develop a rocket, a traditionally manufactured rocket. They proved that the commercial investment interest could see 
um, positive returns. They're something that had failed in every commercial launch attempt prior to SpaceX. You know, no one knows the names of the companies prior to SpaceX because they all failed pretty quick. And then it fizzled and lost a lot of money in the process. So SpaceX proved it was possible to build a commercial rocket launch company. And, and by doing so, the two things that helped relativity was make it so, and this is kind of the rule of thumb that I, I even carry to our investment work today, is counting miracles. How many miracles need to be solved for the company to be successful? And as complex as relativity is, you know, supporting rocket development, printer development, things like that, the rocket development, while technically challenging, expensive, operationally challenging, had been proven out. The printer development was the miracle to solve for relativity. And we did that, you know, over the course of the first, you know, four or five, six years, proving out the printers. Then in a way where the rocket development and the rocket production and rocket launch operation, that was supported as we scaled by people who had done that in their previous jobs. They'd done that at SpaceX, they'd done that at Virgin Orbit, they'd done it at a lot of the other companies in the industry, where we contained the core development into a very kind of finite, tangible amount of risk that we, we solved over time, rather than something that would have been solving all of those areas at once. And in terms of uh, capital, how much did the company raise to date? The company's raised about $1.3 to date. Then um, that started with the first round, which was a hair above 500,000. You know, it was something the seed round was 500,000 back in 2015, which we considered a lot of money for a seed round. When you talk about seed rounds today, there's still quite a bit more inflated than that. But, you know, it went from two of us with $500,000. We developed the first uh, subscale printers. We made the first parts. It was just myself and Tim in those days and and then we raised you know 14 million and then we raised 30 million and then 200 million and 500 million and you know compounded from there and then there was a, another round after that as well but in doing so we incrementally proved out the printers the printed rocket technology the team the operation in a way where those higher and higher fundraise amounts were warranted over time hey guys so pardon the interruption here so i gotta tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And, I mean, it sounds like you guys were on this rocket ship, 
and uh, and I'm sure having a ton of fun. I mean, now the company has how many employees are the company now? The company is around 1,300 employees. I mean, that's absolutely unbelievable. Like being the co-founder of something like that, Jordan. Congrats to you. So, uh, so why, why, why deciding? Hey, it's time to turn page here. For me, I loved the early days. I loved when uh, the risk in the product development was truly kind of tangible in the printers. Then that we had to prove out for the first time, it's kind of that zero to one moment then for companies that you hear about. We had to prove out that the printers could print rocket quality parts. We had to scale the printers to the point that they could cover rocket size parts. Then we had to develop and integrate those into full of vehicles and then demonstrate that the printer production scaling could make rockets faster, cheaper, you know, iterate quicker. Then, and the company would not be successful if it wasn't for, for proving all of that out. And we incrementally burnt down that risk um, over the beginning years of the company. You know, it was when we were seven people, 14 people, kind of 20 people, where a lot of those milestones were burnt down by that early team. And that's when we reached an inflection point around, I'd say, like 2019 or so, where we started biasing more towards hiring people who had solved other challenges in their previous lives. You know, when we were hiring the printer team, when we were doing the printer development, then there wasn't someone who had built the world's largest metal 3D printer before. There wasn't someone that had printed a rocket before. Then we had to figure out who to even hire, how to build those teams, how to train those teams. And then came, you know, hiring, you know, a VP that had high, that had scaled production before, a VP that had scaled software development before, a VP that had scaled, um, you know, regulatory operations before for rocket companies. And that for me felt very different. Like there's huge challenges with scaling and operating at that level. I don't want to sound like th those are dismissive you know, or that I dismiss those, but, but they're different challenges. And I was less satisfied by those. And I was craving kind of going back to the early days of when we were doing that fundamental zero to one R&D, where there is no textbook, there's no company to reference, there's no person to hire that's done it before. You're figuring it all out from scratch, and there's no one coming to save you. It's kind of all on you to solve that yourself. And, and uh, I enjoy that part. So then how do you start to think about, hey, what could be the next chapter here for me? And, and how do you land on the idea of going to the other side of the table? No, it's a good question. And what ended up happening is uh, one of my friends that I had met, my industry friends uh, I'd met along the way at Relativity was another investor called Jenna Bryant. Her name is Jenna Bryant. Then she's based out of LA. She's from Alabama. She was a partner at another fund in Los Angeles. And, and she had reached out to me originally in um, it was kind of 2018, 2019 to join an event series she was hosting, bringing together venture-backed founders that had success working with the U.S. government, which I was viewed as a, uh, I didn't realize at the time, but viewed as uh, kind of a shining star of having done that then at the time. Then. Um, and even tracing back into my USC days of working with the U.S. government on regulatory issues and, and launch issues. And um, she reached out to me to help mentor her portfolio during those events. Then because she had a passion to see U.S. national security development within the startup innovation community. Um, that's a much more active topic today, but rewind four or five, six years ago. That's still when it was kind of taboo in Silicon Valley to be working in defense. 
And um, so she wanted to see how to build that passion within her portfolio. Um, and her passion for it comes from the fact that her brother is a V-22 Osprey pilot. Then he's in the South China Sea on an aircraft carrier, kind of at the front lines of what is growing to be a potential conflict. And so she has a very personal interest in seeing national security innovation um, for her brother's sake, you know, for the country's sake. And um, but that said, that's how we met. And we shared a lot in what we wanted to see. We became friends through that event series. What uh, We shared a lot in what we wanted to see different in venture. And, um, and as I was stepping out of relativity, I didn't yet know what I wanted to do next. I wanted to spend some time kind of soul searching. And she first asked me if I wanted to be an advisor to a new fund she was starting, a fund called Embedded Ventures. And, and I started becoming an advisor, you know, kind of to kick the tires and, you know, get my feet wet. A lot of it to get exposed to what companies were out there, because as a fund, you get to know a lot of companies. And she noticed before I did, and I came to accept this as well, um, very, very positively accepted, that that opportunity to work with early stage companies, then at that kind of zero to one phase to help mentor them, leverage my previous experience to help them and not end up being stuck in what we call a champagne problem of growing past the scale that you enjoy, that would all come together working at the fund. Because I would be evaluating companies, investing in them, mentoring them over time, and then passing them on to larger scale investors over time in a way where I would essentially get stuck at the scale that I enjoy. And she saw that, asked me to come on as a, a general partner. Um, if you ask her, she says it was quite a challenge to get me on board. If you ask me, I say I accepted essentially immediately once it <laughs> made sense. Um, but that's what pulled me in is, is her recognition of that. And it's a hundred million fund, correct? That's correct. That's amazing. Good stuff. Now, in your guys' case, you know, what are the typical companies that you like to see and, and, and what, what is the investment thesis? Yeah, so our primary thesis is national security space technology. And um, in breaking that down, the space technology side, a lot of that comes from, obviously, my background. And there's a growing need for that. I had mentioned the SpaceX side where there's a lot of commercial interest and has been in commercial investment interest in commercial launch. Then investing in companies like Relativity, SpaceX, um, Virgin Orbit, you know, a set of others. And, um, but it, there was a lagging interest in investing in the areas that we call, you know, beyond launch. What happens is launch costs come down because launch was such a bottleneck and we built such momentum there as an industry and lowering costs that a lot of the investment world was not yet ready to invest in new areas that happen after launch. And a lot of that we credit, there's just less technical depth within a lot of the investor base. There's less of a vision for how that'll play out. It's just a riskier area to be investing in. Um, so we the saw the opportunity to help fill that as far as what happens as launch costs come down and new things happen in space that haven't happened in space before or areas that were previously in space get disrupted because of the rapidly changing economics underneath the launch efforts. And so our portfolio itself would split about a third in space assets, a third advanced manufacturing here back on Earth, so very synergetic with um, the space portfolio, and then a third digital engineering, so software for hardware design. How are things designed? How is the supply chain managed? How is kind of all the digital innovation in the world affecting aerospace production and development, which is a fairly untapped area, um, even by VCs? And also you guys are quite unique in the sense that um, 
you're even spinning out companies like uh, Kitty Cat. So uh, what's that? What's that model? You know what? Why do you guys? Why do you guys spin out companies? How does that work? No, it's it's a great question, and for us, we call ourselves having a you know, kind of a high conviction, high concentration thesis, which is not what every venture investor has. You know, you you hear a lot in the venture community on sufficient diversification to hit power law returns by being essentially, I call it lucky, that you hit a unicorn. Then, and for us, you know, we respect that model, but it's not really what gets our wheels spinning. We like having that very high conviction approach with companies where we can have less diversification. We still have, you know, quite a bit, but less than most VCs. And that often involves building theses around how the markets will play out, how certain sectors will play out, how certain technologies play out, and trying to find the companies that fill what we find to be a, you know, a market winner because of that conviction. And sometimes that's done by you know, a company coming to us, kind of forcing us to evaluate an ecosystem, and us deciding that is the company that will be a slam dunk, or us seeing that company and we decide that we want to go after them. But sometimes there's no company that fills that gap well. We recognize a gap, we recognize an opportunity, and there's no company we're seeing that fills that in a way that we get conviction. And that happened with what ended up becoming KittyCad, where uh, it was beginning of 2021, we really wanted to fill a hole in our digital engineering portfolio. And we had some companies we were working with, but there was a gap there that we saw and we built a thesis. It was myself, um, Jenna, and then one of the fund advisors, her name's Jess Frizzell. Then she was a co-founder of one of the companies in Jenna's previous portfolio, a company called Oxide Computer Company. Um, but Jess and I shared a passion as people who had managed significant hardware development before, that all of the advantages of software development in the world, being able to iterate quicker, automatically test software, automatically push things to production, all the things that make software kind of just appear in front of you today so much quicker than 10, 15 years ago, then none of those have migrated into hardware design. And relatively, we migrated them into hardware manufacturing with the, the printers and the digitization of the printers. But none of that software development and kind of the flywheel of software you hear about had gone into hardware design. So me and Jess, we shared that passion. We shared that kind of hardware, software, hybrid background. Um, and we brainstormed essentially what would become a market winner in the hardware design ecosystem, kind of the digital engineering ecosystem. And Jenna heard us talking about this continually. We wouldn't shut up about it. Then in the way that we very much had a thesis that we believed in there. And she encouraged us to, you know, well, if we can't find a company working on it or working on it in a way that we thought would succeed, Let's form that company ourselves and then build a founding team around. So we ended up uh, forming the company as a spin out. Then, you know, and we did the anchor investment. When I say spin out, that was the sole um, kind of contribution for the seed round, uh, the pre seed round was embedded writing a check. And, and then we found a CTO co founder. Uh, her name's Hannah Bolar, and out of Pixar, which so we needed the graphics animation background for building part of the company up. And then the challenge was finding a CEO. But it was kind of this very haphazard route how we built the company. Then I ended up stepping in as CEO because I had built a lot of the vision for the company. I had built um, the executive team in mentoring Hannah. Then I was doing sales. I was doing fundraising. And kind of the kitty cat team and embedded team settled that it would be easier to promote me to CEO, even part-time. 
and better for the company for me being part-time than me spending time trying to mentor someone into take over, taking over a company that I had such a large contribution in founding and in setting the vision for. Um, so I ended up coming in as CEO and then, you know, long story short or long story long, then Jess came on full-time as chief scientist last year. Then, um, and with her as chief scientist and her having that same foundational value to the company, we ended up promoting her to CEO and myself to executive chairman to round out the founding team. But it ended up being something where um, amazing company, we're super happy with it so far. And even the embedded LPs have a huge respect for the style of doing that because it ends up being a very, very strong head start on a returns generator that de-risks um, and balances a lot of the rest of the portfolio. But hey, I like that. If uh, you can't find a company, you just create one. You know, you can find a company to invest in. Hey, you let's just build it. So uh, that's pretty cool. Now, obviously, you built a unicorn yourself. You have, um, you know, been in it. Uh, you've done it. And now, when it comes to being on the other side of the table and being able to rock, to recognize others that have that potential of doing the same thing, because you've seen it, you've experienced it, you know how it looks like. When it comes to pattern recognition, what are the three key things that you look in companies when you are uh, evaluating them? No, that's that's a great question as far as the three key things. And for us, um, I break it down. The first one is a very strong technical differentiator. You see a lot of companies that have, you know, marketplace moats. They have moats in various ways. And at least for us and our best ability to evaluate companies, because there are plenty of companies that build on top of moats outside of technical differentiation and how that technical differentiation wins over a market. Where we feel we have the best asymmetric edge on evaluating companies is those ones with a strong technical differentiator that results in a moat and strong defensibility over time. So the first one I'd say is there. There's plenty of companies that could be summarized pretty easy as marketplaces, pretty easily as what I'd call like a dashboard company. They're just an interface on a website. There's no tech underneath. And despite it being code, there's no kind of tech differentiation underneath. And those we pass on. And so that's the first one I'd say in differentiation. Uh, the second area I'd say is that they're under-noticed in the market. Then, and that's a challenge to find because we look for companies, especially when you're looking at, you know, extreme space technology. And, you know, some of those areas are heavily invested in, like launch. Then where almost every fund has some exposure to the commercial launch world now. And we don't invest in those areas where every investor is going after. But there's some sectors in space that are so far out in expectations on generating returns, expectations on market development around them, like they're very immature or non-existent markets today that those companies are going after. We can't generate returns for our LPs if those are on longer than, you know, a seven to 10 year time scale, or it's sufficiently high risk of manifesting markets around them. So we try to find companies on that cusp where they're perfectly timed, they're not so early in market development that there's not going to be returns potential from them. But they're not so late in their market development around them that every other investor is chasing them, which means inflated prices, excessively fast or rushed processes that lead to misses on an investment process side. And so that's the second area. And then the third I'd say, I'd say is, um, is founder ambition and in potential there. And you tend to see that, at least for me, I really like seeing people that have done things on their own, not just school projects, not just things that were catered to them. It's they had a passion for something and they went after it um, relentlessly. 
And, and I'd say that's necessary because building a company, building a startup, no, no day is easy. You have your wins, you have your losses, you know, depending on the day, it's high highs, low lows, building a company up. Then, um, but you have to push through those. Then you can't let the victories distract you from what is actually continuing to make progress. And you can't let the losses get ahead of you either and slow you down. You just have to keep pushing through. And at least for me, the example I'd use on um, pattern matching, mirroring is things like hands-on projects in college, on the side. You know, if they were at a big job, what were they doing on the side? Because, you know, being at Google for 10 years means nothing on eventually creating a startup. Things like that, where the ability to demonstrate ambition on their own is huge for being uh, able to carry a company over a decade. Absolutely. Now, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say, hi, what is the best way for them to do so, Jordan? Uh, the best way I'd say is just messaging me on Twitter. Then um, my Twitter handles um, the Jordan Noon. Um, and just search for me, you'll find me. And then alternatively, my email address um, for the fund is jordan at embedded.ventures. Happy to see messages on both. Amazing. Easy enough. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.